Um, this message is, I think, somewhat prophetic uh, and somewhat uh, like a teaching message, and so that's where it's going to come from. The reason I say prophetic is uh, I think the, the word came to me in the night. You know, I don't know that I was asleep because sleep has been kind of sketchy lately, so it's, there's a lot of time in this weird in-between state. But I believe overnight last Sunday into Monday, um, the Lord, I just had felt very strongly that I had been visited by the Lord with kind of a picture of something, so much so that, and, you know, I don't know if this goes this way in your home, but Carol I, uh, comes down in the morning, and, and before she could say anything, I just had to unpack everything that was, you know, the Lord was, I think, saying to me, and I think she had her eyes wide open, like, whoa, like, what's, so really, uh, sometimes messages come easy because you see them clearly through through what I think is a prophetic lens, kind of like open their eyes to see the, the army. So I'll, I'll tell you, um, you know, where I'm going with this. But first, let me, let me just use a grounding passage of Scripture and then unpack it. The title to the message is Yielding to Grace. Yielding to Grace. Uh, yield is not a word that you find in Scripture in the way that I'm using it here Frequently, usually yield in Scripture is used in terms of like crops, you know, or our lives yielding fruit, these sorts of things. But I'm using the word yield here, similar to the word submit or to give way. And actually, Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, which I'm going to ground this in, is interesting use of it because it almost says you have to kind of back reverse engineer to get at the yielding part here. This is what... Romans 12 says, it says, be devoted to one another in love. This is saying, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, be devoted to one another in love. This is exactly what I was just praying about fellowship, that we would, we would fight for this, we would yearn for this. We would, to be devoted here means to be supremely given over to it. This isn't something we just kind of, you know, we should get together sometime and have dinner. This is making this a priority preference in our lives that we say, you know what, it's more important that we have dinner together and we have fellowship than my kids go to soccer practice or, you know, something like that. And it says, after that, honor one another above yourselves. How do I get to yielding in that? Here's how. What this passage is essentially saying is, and I could have chosen another passage, for example, Ephesians 5, I think it's 18 or something like that, where it says, submit to one another. And then gives examples. Wives, submit to your husbands this way. Husbands, submit to your wives this way. Um, In this passage, the Apostle Paul is essentially saying that the competition that should exist amongst you as brothers and sisters in Christ is to see who can honor the other above yourself the better. So that James and I are friends, and I say, James, in order to live out my relationship with you in a way that's Christ-like, I'm going to honor you above the way that I want honor in my own life. So I'm going to bow down in ways. I'm going to even yield, even when it comes to areas like rights. I'm going to, I'm going to lay those down in order to honor you above myself. In that way, I'm going to devote myself to loving you, and you're going to devote yourself in response to loving me. And if there's any competition in our relationship, it's who could yield in a more fruitful way to build the relationship in Christ. Does that, does that give you a basic understanding of what I'm talking about? All right. So let me give you the, the picture, the way I see this connected to this picture I saw the Lord showing me. Um, 
how many of you are, and I know because I talked to Hallie, she's kind of in this boat, how many of you are, are either learning to drive or you can remember the phases of your life of learning to drive? Like learning the rules of the road and learning to drive. I can tell you as a parent, there, there's probably nothing more traumatic than teaching four children to drive. The very first one that drove wanted to get his license and uh, his permit, and he, ins he insisted, and I somehow thought it was a good idea to allow him to drive out of the parking lot of the, uh, of the driver's license office onto the road, and we barely survived that first trip. <laughs> Others went about it differently. But when you are a new driver, or even as an experienced driver, there are certain rules to the road that are nuanced and you have to, you know, you can forget even what exactly how things are supposed to go. And the one in particular that I have in mind right now is, is the imperative nature of learning what to do at a four-way stop. How many, how many of you over here, you, Hallie, you're 15. Anybody else over here in the boat of kind of like, you just got your permit or you're needing, to, are you ready to get your permit? Anybody else? All right, come on up here. Hallie, you come on up here too. You can stay down here, though. You should, you're like, no, nah, I wish I didn't raise my hand. Here, just stay down here, though, guys. So do you see this, do you see this cross, this, the, this, these two cracks in, in the concrete here, these two joints? So imagine that's a street and that's a street. And I want you, one of you to get right here so you're facing that way. And then one of you to get right, yeah, one of you facing here. Now, Hallie, you stand on the, on the other concrete crack. And you see, the, you see the, where they come together? Imagine that is an intersection. You guys know what an intersection is, right? Two roads crossing each other. Now, some intersections are really easy to navigate because they have stops on, I mean red lights, and they have traffic signals. Jacksonville's the red light running capital of the world, but if you, if you follow the rules, green light means, red light means, yellow light means, go even faster. <laughs> Carol says no. So, sometimes though in these intersections you don't have this. What you have is you have a stop sign. What is the rule at a stop sign? Come to a complete stop, and then once you've come to a complete stop, what? Yeah, look, out, look all around you, and then once you know the coast is clear, put the pedal to the metal and peel out across the intersection. No, just kidding, you go. So. Here's the question. What happens when the two of you arrive at the intersection at exactly the same time? So back up a few steps. Back up just a couple of steps. Now walk towards the, the, crap, the, the joint until I say stop. Come, 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 stop. Who gets to go first? What's that? Why? Out of kindness. Okay, but is that a traffic law? <laughs> is it called like the kindness law? What, what's your idea, Allie? Who goes first? No idea, right? This is one of the incredible nuances of traffic. In most states, including the state of Florida, there's an actual rule for who goes first. Who goes first when you both come at the same time is the person to your right goes first. So who's to your right? No one. Who's to your right? Hallie, so who goes first? Hallie, so Hallie, go through. And now you come on through. Now turn back around. 
Now come to that same place. Okay, so there you are. So who's on your right? Okay, but say you don't really like this law. Or say that, that could happen. Okay, turn back around. That could happen. Or what happens if you both just decide, I don't really care about rights or yours. I care about my rights, my hurry, my place I got to go, and you both go at the same time. Let's see what happens. <laughs> Boom. Collision course, right? All right. You guys have just illustrated perfectly where I want to go with this message, and so thank you for helping me to do that. And now I want to take... You, you guys can have, you can stay if you want, but you can have a seat if you want. You guys give them a hand for their. So I'm going to tell you that I believe my message here is, is for the body of Christ. But I'm going to tell you that I believe that our nation is at a four-way stop of ideologies. And we don't know who should yield. We have coronavirus ideologies. We have racial ideologies. We have political ideologies. We have ideologies around sexuality. We have, you know, we show up at the intersection exactly the same time, and one person says is a mask wearer, and the other is I'm never going to wear a mask. We have people who show up saying black lives matter, and somebody shows up saying all lives matter at the same exact time. We have, I mean, we have all these ideologies that are coming to the intersection exactly the same time, and and nobody wants to yield. Are you with me? This message, this where I what I believe the Lord's shown me, I, I believe applies at every level of your life. I don't believe, the most difficult place to apply these sorts of rules is at the most macro level. What does it mean for me to live in a world that has very different views than, you know, than, than I believe the Lord's showing me? How do I yield in those situations? Very different than what it means in, in more close to home ways. There are issues of differences of ideologies where husbands and wives show up at the intersection at exactly the same time. And husbands and wives have to learn to navigate their way through the tender waters of going through for, you know, intersections through, the, through yielding in which agreement has to be made. If agreement cannot be made in this place, then what faces that, what, what looms for that marriage? divorce, if there's no yielding, if there's no way to sort out the way that we'll navigate our way through this, then what about parenting? We have to learn within our parenting how to navigate our way through this so that we can, we can determine. What about within our own lives, with our own inner person, you know, trying to reconcile certain areas of, our lo of my life, like, you know, sh should I stay, should I go, should I, you know, should I say something, should I remain silent? Should I have the awkward conversation that's going to create some problems, or should I sweep it under the rug and just keep the peace? I mean, there's all these things that go on within us. So how do we make a determination? And I'm going to tell you, from the, from the, to back it up to the most macro-theological level, the picture that I saw from the Lord is two vehicles arriving at the intersection at exactly the same time, one named Justice and one named Grace. They show up at the intersection exactly the same time. Which one goes first? Here's the challenge. When judgment pulls up to the intersection, it does, or when justice pulls up the intersection, it doesn't arrive alone. It's trailering judgment along with it because judgment always accompanies justice appropriately, right? 
if you go to court and there's a criminal case and someone's found guilty of, con of committing a crime, that, that's the justice part. Justice has been, been served, but there's judgment that comes with justice, correct? You're going to serve a prison sentence. If it's a civil case, justice determines who's at fault, and then the judgment would be something monetary. Are you following me? Justice and judgment go together. Grace shows up at the stop sign and is always accompanied along, you know, sitting in the passenger seat is mercy. And so mercy and grace always kind of travel through together. Do we believe that only one has the right to pass through that intersection? No. We believe that both have to make it through. We don't believe that grace and mercy get to go through the intersection and justice and judgment have to pull over and never get to pass through. Both must pass through the intersection. Both must go on their way. But they can't both go through at the same time and there's a bad wreck. And I would suggest to you, biblically, I'm going to make this case, that if grace yields to justice, which is what I see happening more and more in our nation today, then judgment as well as justice will proceed through the intersection first. And grace and mercy are left at the intersection waiting for the road to clear. And we all agree that there is a place for justice and judgment. But we should agree that that place should be left primarily for those who are good at administering it. Let me just flip over to the book of Romans chapter 2. You don't have to go there. I don't know if we'll have it or not. It doesn't really matter. But let me just tell you, this is where justice and judgment kind of sort of get, begin to make their way clear. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're actually condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. This is not saying we should never judge things. This is Paul unpacking the sorts of things that incur the wrath of God and then saying, you know, the way that God handles this. He's saying, you need to be really careful. He said, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things, God's judgment against people who do wrong is always right because God's judgment is always based in truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on people who are doing wrong things, and yet you are doing the same things, you actually are bringing judgment upon yourself. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, basically grace and mercy, not realizing that it's God's kindness that's led you into a place of repentance. Do you get what's being said here? It's saying that we have to be really careful in making sure that we demand justice and judgment go ahead because really this is God's, God's much better at this than we are because he always gets it right. And because oftentimes when we demand that justice and judgment go ahead of grace and mercy, we're doing it, as Paul says here, out of a hardness of heart not out of a tenderness to the Lord. And so I want to unpack this for you in, in, in some very practical ways. Um, I think I can do this because and I'm going to come back to actually demonstrating for you how these things get reconciled at the intersection. But let me just unpack it from the perspective of what we have to do. The imperative nature of us allowing grace uh, to go through first, for justice to yield, and then justice makes its way through, <clears throat> is tied to this concept called forgiveness. The reason that I re I'm saying it's one of the few quivers, I, or one of the few arrows in my quiver, is because I think it's such an imperative thing within the, the body of Christ. Forgiveness and offense-taking are massive impediments to us walking on both feet. When you are living in offense and you're living in unforgiveness, 
you're not just running around on a scooter. You are, you're immobilized. Let me unpack it for you. If you flipped over in your Bible, you can find this in Mark, Matthew, or in Luke. But if you flip to the book of Matthew, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus moves to a discussion about prayer. And in that discussion, he, he unpacks what we call the, the Lord's Prayer, or what I would call a lordly prayer. He says, this is how you should pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts or trespasses or simply sinned as we forgive those who trespass against or those who sin against us <clears throat> and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a nice little smorgasbord of the way that we're supposed to live in prayer before the Lord. But Jesus thinks this one component of it is so important that when he finishes showing us how to pray, he goes right back into it. So in verses 14 and 15, he unpacks this for us very precisely. And I need your help. Because I don't know exactly, I'm telling you honestly, I do not know exactly what this means or what the final cost of this is. I don't know. I can't figure it out. This is what Jesus says. If you forgive people who sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. What does that mean? James I've already said he's, this, he's my friend. I'm going to try to honor him. But James actually has done something to hurt me. If I forgive James for what he's done to hurt me, then the Father will forgive me. Of what? what? I didn't do anything to James. What's the Father forgiving me of? Say it out loud. Sins, other things, right? He's saying that there, he, I, I believe Jesus is saying is, is that my inability to forgive James is impacting my entire life, other areas of my life. Do you, are, you, are you tracking with me? Okay, but he doesn't just stop there. He says, but if you do not forgive men their sins, if I will not, your father will not forgive your sins. What does that mean? What's the simplest possible way we can interpret that? If I will not forgive James, God, so I go before God and I say, I follow all the rules. Father, I repent. I've sinned before you, and I ask that you would just forgive me. You would, lay my, you know, you would, you would cast my sins into the sea of forgetfulness, and, you would, and I would rightly relate to you in Jesus' name. I follow all the rules. I repent. And, but, and, but what would God say to me? I do not forgive you, Jeff, of your sin because you do not forgive James of his sin. Am I reading that right? Could it be interpreted differently? There are some nuances we could get into, which you don't really have time to now. My ultimate concern with this as an evangelist is I don't know where that leaves a person when they die. If I die in unforgiveness towards James, I don't know where that leaves me before the Lord. Maybe I have a chance before God to say, are you willing to relinquish that unforgiveness? Toward? I don't know. But if not, what does this, if I only have this verse to go on, what does this verse say about my spiritual life? If I will not relinquish my offense towards James, will God relinquish his offense towards me? Yes or no? 
No. Are you tracking with me? Jesus tells it another way when he talks, he gives a parable about this when he says, hey, there was a guy who owed uh, a ruler, a king, millions of dollars. And he was going to get put into jail for this, you know, and, and he begs the king for forgiveness. He says, look, can you, and, and, and the ruler is kind and lets grace lead the way. And so what does he do? He forgives him all of his debt. And then the guy's walking out of court, and on the way walking out of court, say, me, I'm walking out of court. God just, you know, the, the king's just forgiven me of millions of dollars. I run into James. Sorry, James. You're just the guy today. You're right here in my view. I love you. Um, and I go, hey, James, you still owe me a few thousand dollars. I need it now. And James says, hey, dude, sorry. I don't have it. Could you forgive me of that? Just let it go. And I say, no, I will not. In fact, if you won't pay me, I'm putting you and your family in prison. I'm holding all of you accountable until it can be repaid. And then some people hear that I've done this, and they go back to the judge, the king, to the ruler, and say, hey, this is what Jeff just did. The parable Jesus tells says that ruler will then come and snatch me up and place me in prison until I can repay everything I owe. Am I misinterpreting this, this, idea, this theology? You guys tracking with me? Okay, good. So I, I, I'm, I'm hoping I see this correctly because I think it's an imperative way for us to navigate our way through a life in God. I think then it's important for me to take just a couple minutes and go back into a teaching that I've taught a number of times. I personally believe that Christians should be the least offended people in the world. I don't believe we should carry offense at all that we, we, we should not walk around offended. If there's offense in our lives, it should be because things are so huge that, it, it, that, that God dictates or determines that there must be offense, you know, if there's massive injustice, if there's, you know, heinous crime, if there, you know, and I don't want to even get into the sorts of things, but the sorts of things the enemy just prevails over, there ha you know, of course there is a literal offense that's there that God's going to write. But, you know, Miroslav Volf says this about, about, this whole area of forgiveness. He says, a non-violent approach to solving um, issues of injustice can only, one can only adopt that if you have a grid or a belief that of a, a, a right grid of the vengeance of God. He's saying that you can only let go of your desire to get even with somebody if you believe ultimately God will take care of it. And so, so I believe that we are called by God to not live in offense, particularly little offenses, little things. And I believe that the body of Christ is swimming in increasing offense. I see it in my own life. I see it in my family. I see it in our church. I see it in the community. I see it in the world. And this is what I've taught before on this. Trying to not take offense is like trying to not think about elephants. I don't think that you're always sitting around thinking about elephants, but now that I've just mentioned elephants and I say, Hallie, don't think about elephants. Can you do it? Yeah, I mean, it, once you put, have something in there, you know, it's hard to go, okay, but don't think about them anymore. Just eradicate that thought. Once, you, once somebody puts that in there, it, you automatically begin to think about the things that have gotten in there. And if somebody's offended us, we automatically, it's, we just begin to swim in that place. And if we focus ourselves on just trying to not take offense, then we're simply going to keep thinking about the offense. You offended me, James, and I'm going to think about not being offended by it. Keeps me keeping in my mind the fact that you offended me. 
And so that principle applies to just about anything, any sin a person can commit. When I focus on a behavior, something that's gone on, even if I'm attempting to eliminate it, the result is I end up thinking more about that behavior. It's just how our minds work. And thankfully, there's a better way to address the problem. People are lured and enticed into sin, the book of James says, coincidentally, as a result of desire. You know, wanting something is the beginning of, of sinning. And every sinner bad behavior begins with desire. And desire in and of itself isn't bad. If I desire Jesus, th there are many good things I can desire. But the desires that lead to sin are wrong desires. They're based in false perspectives and misplaced you know, expectations about ourselves and others. And so if I expect something wrong at James and he doesn't live up to that, then I become offended at it and I begin to dwell on the offense. I never get over it. And so I have to dis first discover what's underlying, you know, my offense. And so for a lot of us, our propensity, our tendency to get offended over little things is rooted in this false perspective of security. We desire to be safe. We desire to be secure. We desire to have a a good opinion of others and for others to think good about us. And when they do good things to us and when good things happen, everything goes well. You know, think good about me, the way I speak, the way I dress, the way I express myself. But when my security is ultimately based on my performance, like how you feel about me, <clears throat> you know, the, the beliefs that I have, and somebody threatens that in some way, you post something on Facebook that opposes what I believe, I feel offended and the need to defend myself and and my natural response is to take offense or become angry or to, to push justice through as quickly as I possibly can, and judgment comes trailing with it. Even casual, flippant, offhand remarks, things that don't matter, can steal our peace and steal our joy. And the way to prevent this, first and foremost, is to deal with the garbage, which is our, our need for our, our desire for security. As long as our feelings of security are, are rooted in ourselves, then the tendency is always going to be to take offense, even at little things. If we can get outside of that place of our security being in ourselves, then we can move beyond it. And so I want to offer to you something very practical here. It's an acronym that helps me remember this all the time. It's, it's just the letter C-O-P, COP, okay? This is my formula that I use. The reason I return to this a lot is this is a personal struggle. This is a struggle within my family of origin, you know, just easily offended and then holding it. It's, it's, it's not uncommon in my family as I look back through the ages to see little things that happened that caused people to not talk about, not talk to each other for the rest of their lives. Anybody ever seen anything like this happen in families or in friendships? Yeah, I'm very familiar with this. And so for me, this is a massive spiritual formula for me to live day in and day out. This is like a daily vitamin that I take. And it goes C-O-P. Let me explain really quickly what they are. C, cover. Cover, like to cover over something. Twice in the book of Hebrews, we're told to cover offenses. Proverbs, did I say book of Hebrews? Man, I, I, I'm literally looking at a note that says book of Proverbs, and I said Hebrews. In the book of Proverbs, twice. Proverbs 10, verse 12, and Proverbs 17, verse 9. Just go look them up yourself. They simply say, cover the offense. Of another, and it's your glory to do so. Um, it, it, the basic notion is that the covering of offense is related to love. First Peter 4 says it this way, love covers over a multitude of sins. Yeah, and that multitude would have to include particularly a lot of small stuff. And so you say something that's offensive to me, and I can choose in that moment to be offended by it or just to let it go. It doesn't matter. Cover over it. 
in any relationship that you have, any relationship, your marriage, your friendships, your parenting, your children, you know, all, anything, work relationships, anything, there's going to be stuff that happens repeatedly, irksome little things that should be covered over for the sake of love, and eventually we don't. Eventually we get to a point where we say, I've had enough, I'm done. It's enough stuff is stacked up, I'm done covering it, I'm over it, I'm offended. And I'm, I, it, it's just the way it is. But by covering an offense, you want to know what part of covering an offense is? Can I just tell you? It's going to blow your mind how simple this is. A massive part of covering an offense is not revealing it to others. Ooh. Do you know how much joy it gives the enemy when James says something little that offends my heart and I go to Brian and I go, do you know what that James Larson said? The enemy goes, man, I got him. Now that Jeff's let it out there, man, it's now I got him. And so a massive part of covering offense is just not revealing it, but just beginning to empathize with the offender and extending the benefit of doubt. So perhaps James didn't mean what he said. Perhaps he didn't mean it. You know we're really good recorders and really bad interpreters? If you're trying to interpret what somebody means by a text message, or by a Facebook comment, or even by in, a, in the course of a, of a long conversation, odds are you've recorded what they said, but you've not interpreted it right. This happens all the time. I can tell you as a pastor, this happens. One of the things that, one of the mantras of, of being in ministry is you have to surrender to the right to be understood because people oftentimes misinterpret, you know, what you've said, and they get offended. I can't do the same in response, or we'll both live in offense. And so perhaps James is just having a bad day. You know, he just said something out of anger, or he just wasn't thinking straight. Covering up that offense actually helps me when I do it, because do you remember that elephant thing? When I, when I focus, when I take my mind off of the offense that I have, and I begin to focus on the needs of James, like, man, what's going on in James' life? I no longer think about the offense I feel. I begin to think about James. And I, I mean, I hope this is tracking with you guys as, like, basic, elementary teaching, right? And I hope you're going, gosh, Jeff, this is overwhelmingly simple. Because the deep stuff is usually in the simple stuff. I'm not trying to impress you with, with some sort of deep revelation. This is really simple, okay? If you, if you focus on the needs of others, guess whose needs you don't focus on? The, co the, the reason I grounded this in Romans 12 is it says, be fired up about, devote yourself to loving one another. And, and Jeff, the way you're going to do this is you're going to fight to honor James above yourself. When I stop thinking about myself and start thinking about honoring James, I lose that elephant thought, that offense thought. And so um, that's covering. Secondly, you got, that's the C. Secondly, overlook. Proverbs, again, says it simply this way. A person's wisdom yields patience. So if you have wisdom, it'll yield patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. So what this basically says is it's an honorable thing to forgive others. When you cover an offense, you give grace and empathy to the offender. You yield to grace. When I say to James, man, when I say to myself, James, you just really offended me with that, that comment that you made, but I'm going to overlook it. What I'm doing is I'm allowing, I'm holding justice and judgment there at the intersection to allow grace and mercy to pass through. Then once grace and mercy have passed through, I allow my, the justice to go through, and it, it, it has less weight to it. I, I can usually look at it and go, it's not that big a deal anymore. 
when you overlook an offense, you choose to give something valuable away, you, you, the, which is you, you're giving away the, you know, the reminder that your security isn't, isn't based in somebody else's opinion of you, but your security is based in Christ. So I don't have to, if James has said something offensive to me, it's okay because James isn't ultimately the arbiter of my security, of my identity. Christ is. And so I can overlook it and I can be still with you in a loving relationship with him. Enough said there. C-O-P. What's the P? Anybody want to guess? Pray. And this is what Jesus tells his disciples on multiple occasions, that if they pray for anything in his name or according to his will, that they would have what they ask for. Do you believe that God wants you to be angry and offended at the people you're angry and offended at? Do you think that's his desire? That he is, as he's spoken to you, I give you permission to, to carry offense and anger because it's righteous? If you've heard that from God, we can have a conversation about it. I would suggest to you in almost every case, you have not heard that from the Lord. In almost every case, what God says is, I want you to reconcile these differences. If you have something against your brother, go reconcile with him. If your brother has something against you, go reconcile with him. So if you believe that, that your security is actually in, in, in Jesus rather than yourself, and if you pray consistently for God to help you to not take offense, he will answer that prayer in your life. If you ask him to remind you how secure and steadfast his love is, he will answer that prayer. And you can confidently pray that he will be the provision you need for any offending situation. He will help you get over any offense you have if you will let him, particularly the little things. And I would suggest to you that 80% of the stuff that we walk around and fence in is little stuff. So, let me, let me sum it up. When we take offense, it's because someone has hurt us or frightened us. You know, a lot of the stuff we're dealing with now in terms of this, this intersection of ideologies that we're in as a nation is fear. People are saying things like, uh, man, if you, you know, coronavirus is a, you know, whatever. Let's just say a hoax. And if you had faith, you'd take your mask off and just go for it. What's embedded in that statement? Fear. <laughs> you know? And, and there may be people who are saying, I'm never going to come back out of my house again. You know? Because I don't trust the vaccines. You know, there's tons of fear that's embedded in these sorts of things. And so anytime we begin to feel offense at somebody else's position, it's usually because we're hurt or frightened or afraid. And God has given us ways to deal with that. First, by remembering that the other person also has things that hurt and frighten them. And when you look at the offender and focus on their needs by covering and overlooking what's going on, you don't look at the offense within you so much. Second, by remembering that when you belong to Jesus, you're fundamentally secure in him. and You don't need to react and defend yourself because he has promised to do this for you. You can be nonviolent in your response because vengeance is his. All right. I'm going to finish by bringing this home with just a, 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 my illustration to bring this home is, is straight scripture. It's a, it's a passage of scripture where justice and grace show up at the intersection exactly the same time, and it's really a question, you know, how will this be answered? Who will go first? How will it yield? And it comes in, in John chapter 8, the beginning of John chapter 8, when a, a woman is caught in adultery. You guys know this story? A woman's literally caught in the act. And as she's uh, brought forward by the, the uh, religious, the teachers of the law, 
what, I mean, you can just see how, how beautifully, how literally this lines up. Teachers of the law arrive at the intersection with a woman caught in the act, and they demand what? Justice. And what's trailing behind that? Judgment. What is the, what's the justice that they want here? This woman is caught in the act of adultery. That is against the law. What is the judgment for this act? Death. Stoner. The judgment for this is condemnation. And so Jesus, they literally, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now what do you say? And it you know, says in the John that that was posed that way because they were looking to trap him, to have a basis for accusing him. What does Jesus do at the intersection? He literally bends down at the intersection and begins to, I think he draws this up in the, in the, in the sand. I think he, I, this is one of the pictures I have. This picture, Scott, put it up there. I think this is what Jesus is drawing in the sand, a little figure like this. Just drawing up a little sign there. Say, we're going to have to figure out what to do here at this, at this intersection. They keep badgering him over and over again until finally he looks up and he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. What does this do? What effect does this have? I'll hold that thought and I'll try to wrap up with what effect it has. John says that at this action, at this, at at these words, those who heard him began to go away one at a time. The older ones woe first until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, and Jesus says to her, Woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She answers, No one, sir. Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. The teachers of the law and judgment came to Jesus with a woman who was caught in the act of adultery and demanded justice. The the judgment according to that law was stoning. They come at the intersection and they demand that goes through first. Jesus puts up a stop sign for them and Jesus responds how? With grace. Jesus commands grace to pass through the intersection first. He makes it clear in this action by, I think, that yield and by his word saying to them, let you who is without sin cast the first stone. He makes clear that before an almighty and holy God, all of us deserve judgment and wrath if we demand justice. And if we demand justice, then judgment will follow. So he who's without sin cast the first stone. And when the scripture records that the oldest amongst them began to leave first, why is it? It's because this age be- does something to humble you. The older you get, the more you recognize how much you've stacked up against this holy God. As, at 55 year, years old, I've been walking with Jesus a long time. I, I feel much more dependent and aware of the need for grace than I did when I first rec- had my eyes open to it. Not because I think he's keeping a record and he's stacking it up against me, but because I go, man, the older I am, the more I realize how hard it is to actually live a life that's, that's what he wants. And so 
we should be able, the older we are, to recognize transgression and sin and know that we would rather have mercy than judgment. And also, by our example of giving mercy and forgiveness, we are teaching the younger people in the room, the younger people who are teachers of the law that are there, that it's always better to yield to grace and to allow grace to proceed first. And when we yield to grace and mercy, we are leaving justice and judgment in the hands of the one who is alone able to judge correctly in truth, as Romans 2 says. What does Jesus say to the woman? Where are your accusers? No, none of them are here. Well, neither do I condemn you. So does he just say, forget justice and judgment? No, grace and mercy pass through the intersection. He says, now let's deal with your life. He, Jesus always does this. When there's issues like this, Jesus always runs to the one who's accused and takes their side. He covers them so they won't be killed, essentially. He offers them grace, and then he reconciles their life to truth or justice and judgment. What does he say to her? Go and sin no more. Don't ever do this again. Don't ever do anything sinful again. He doesn't say, just leave this thing out. He's like, you never do anything like this again. You should adhere to the entire law. And the only way you're going to do this is by my grace. My question becomes, who's a better traffic cop in these situations? You and me or Jesus? And we as the, as the body of Christ, we really only have the ability to model or to encourage the world to leave their life of sin. And as, and, and after, after, or as or after we've extended grace and mercy through forgiveness, just like the accusers of that woman, if we harden our hearts and refuse to yield to the grace that's been given to us, and we refuse to extend grace to those who, who are sinning against us by their ideologies or whatever it may be, be then, we, then we're going to end up being judged according to our own demand for justice. And I can't force the world. I can't, there's no authority in my life to force the world to allow grace to proceed first. But I can be the example and teacher for the world of what it looks like when I yield to grace. And I can demand inside the household of faith that we would live our lives this way because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we believe, according to the, to the word that we follow, that, that yielding to grace Yield to, to yield to grace and receive mercy is better than to let judgment go first. And many in the world right now are screaming for justice and judgment, demanding judgment. And I could get into all kinds of ways in which this is happening that I do not agree with on any side of any issue that we have that I've already, many that I've just mentioned. And many of those people, I would say almost all those people who are demanding justice and judgment are doing so with a failure to see their own faults and a refusal to leave their own life of sin. They're refusing to drop their stone and walk away. But they're saying in that, in that course, I don't care. Jesus says, let he who's without sin cast the first stone. They're essentially saying, I don't care if I have sin. I'm still casting my stone. But you, beloved, are different. We're better than that. We can be the example that no matter what the transgression is against us, we can always yield to grace. Much like the cars that are at the intersection who either, you know, don't know the rules, as you saw, you know, 
these guys come up and stand here, and, and, you know, there's an uncertainty about the rules. Either don't know the rules or they're too proud to yield. The end result is a train wreck. The entire universe is structured upon this principle that God demands justice and he exacts judgment against wrong acts, unlawful acts. He never leaves this out. He will always reconcile injustice by making wrong things right. He does this for the entire world and he does this for you. He does this for me. He does this for you and I as individuals on the basis of the cross. And so every wrong thing that you've ever done that demands justice and judgment, if I have properly bent my knee to Jesus and, and, and followed him, then I will stand before God one day and he will say, Jeff, you deserve justice. Justice must be meted out on your life and you deserve judgment for those acts that transgressed me, my law. Wrath must be poured out on you for those things. But you've bent your knee to Jesus and so what should come at you, I have poured that out on him. And instead of receiving that, by grace, you're covered. This is the way the deal works. This is the way that the spiritual law of the universe works. And if we are followers of him who has done this for us, then this is the way we must represent him in the world. There is no other way. We have to yield to grace. We won't see justice properly without it. And so, Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would make our hearts fertile. Tenderize our hearts that they might be ripe for yielding good fruit, that we might be submitted. That as we've sang this morning about your reign and your freedom, that you would come into this place, that you would, that you would pervade all of our hearts as a conquering king, and you would conquer our hearts. You would take control. That we might lay down our offenses, whether they're big or small, whether they're one-on-one -on -one relationships or whether they're towards systems. And that we would relate by grace. In Jesus' name. Brian's going to sing. I'm probably not going to go far because it's not easy.